Uh, I feel a little bit like I did in grade school when you'd go back to school in September and the teacher would say, what did you do this summer, Kim? And then you'd talk about what happened during the summer because what I'm going to talk about this morning, a little different kind of Dharma talk, is what has happened to me this summer because it has been an extraordinary and I would even go so far as to say life-changing kind of summer for both myself and my wife. And I would, this is, I would, this is due to what I would call unexpected gifts. And that's the title of my talk today, Unexpected Gifts. And this all began just two months ago. Uh, I had no idea what was going to happen a little before the, I think it was about the 1st of June. In early June, I received an email from someone I had not seen in 50 years and had not heard from in at least 10 years. He's a man with whom I worked at CIMAD, which is a French Protestant relief organization in Paris that works with refugees. Fifty years ago, this friend Bill, myself, and four other people who were all very young at the time, we were all quite young, embarked on a political mission that was exciting and that actually proved to be historically significant. In his recent email in June, Bill was informing me that all of us who had been involved in this mission 50 years ago were being invited by the president of Cape Verde, which is a set of islands off the coast of Africa, to participate as his guests in the 50th anniversary of the Fuga. Fuga is a word which means escape in Portuguese and is the name which was given to the political mission which we undertook in June and July of 1961. This reunion was to take place in Praia, Cape Verde, from June 28th to July 4. Now this sudden announcement seemed to be coming out of nowhere, and we had to kind of say, is this really happening? We're being invited to be the personal guests of the president of Cape Verde three weeks from now, uh, half, you know, 8,000 miles away. It was unbelievable, and we had, a, we had only three weeks in which to make our plans, get our tickets, and arranged to go to the reunion. But it was the opportunity of a lifetime and we definitely didn't want to miss it. Now originally I had planned to spend this entire talk talking about the Fuga and the reunion, uh, which is the first of two unexpected gifts that came my way this summer, but I also want to spend some time uh, talking at the end about a second gift, which actually was written up in today's times under wedding celebrations, the marriage of Richard Townsend and Jacques Beaumont at uh, Beth Israel Hospital last week. And you'll understand why in a few minutes. The mission, which we call the Fuga, which occurred 50 years ago, it's hard to believe that it's been 50 years, was an extraordinary event. And we didn't realize really how extraordinary it was until the reunion that we had this summer. Sometimes one has the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. And this was the case for me in June of 1961. I was living in Paris and I was teaching English at a lycée just outside of Paris in, at Villemont. My work there was wrapping up and I had interviewed at CIMAD, this French Protestant uh, organization, with the hope of beginning work there in the fall of that year. And Bill Nottingham, the man who had interviewed me to work for CIMAD, showed up at my apartment one night in June 1961 and he said, Kim, I want you to think about this carefully 
but could you be prepared to leave Paris tomorrow afternoon, take a train to the south of France, near the Spanish border, rent a car, and be one of several drivers for a rescue operation that will involve a lot of driving, will take at least a week, possibly longer, and could be very dangerous. Uh, and you can't tell anybody where you're going. You just don't show up to work at the Lycée tomorrow, but don't call them. You can't even tell Margaret, who was then my girlfriend, now my wife of 49 years, can't even tell Margaret where you're going. You just have to trust us and come with us on this mission less than 24 hours from now. And I said, yes, I will do that. He then proceeded to tell me that there were more than 100 students from the Portuguese colonies of Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, and San Tomé who were studying in Lisbon, Portugal. They were the first students from these Portuguese colonies to have completed a university education, and some of them had begun graduate studies in medicine or law. Now Salazar, the fascist dictator and president of Portugal at that time, had taken away all the papers from these students, had imprisoned a few of them on trumped up charges, and was keeping the rest under close observation. He forbade them to leave the country with threat of imprisonment should they attempt to do so. His concern, which proved to be correct, was that if they were allowed to leave the country, they would return to the colonies from which they came and would most likely become the leaders of the independence movements, independence from Portugal in those colonies. Being aware of the danger that these students were in, the president of the World Council of Churches in Geneva called Jacques Beaumont, the man who was married last week in the hospital here, the secretary, who then was secretary general of CIMAD, and asked him if CIMAD could arrange to get these students out of Portugal and into France, where they would be safe and from which point they could find their way back to their home countries. President de Gaulle of France had agreed to grant them political asylum if they could make it into France. CIMAD was the logical organization to take this request to because it was an organization that had worked with refugees and people in political danger since 1939 when it came into being to help Jews in France escape uh, detection by the Nazis. CIMAD immediately agreed to do this and Jacques asked Bill Nottingham, an American pastor working for CIMAD, to put together a team of six people to try to pull this off. I was fortunate enough to be one of the six members of that team. And so began an adventure like nothing I had ever experienced before, and believe me, never have since. And I was kind of young and foolish, and it seemed like a wonderful adventure right now. I'd be scared to death to even imagine doing something like that. The next three weeks were an amazing experience. With the help of professional smugglers, two members of our team managed to get 60 of these students out of Portugal in the middle of the night across a river into a uh, southern Spain where they went into the shed of a farmer who had been hired by one of the smugglers and waited almost 36 hours in total darkness in the hay of this shed waiting for us, the drivers, to arrive. Uh, the four of us who were drivers picked up the students in the middle of the night at the shed and drove them up the west coast of Spain and then across the north of Spain to San Sebastian and from there to the border of, to France at Andai, about a 600 mile trip. Mostly done in the night on very small two-lane mountainous roads. Those weeks, those three weeks, it turned out to be three weeks, were filled with adventures, with near catastrophes including cars breaking down, one car being in an accident, 
all kinds of glitches that could have resulted in the students being arrested and sent back to Lisbon. But somehow we made it. I drove three round trips from Andai to Pontevedra, filling my car each time with five African students. In two weeks, I figured out I drove about 3,600 miles on very bad roads. The Senegalese and Congolese embassies in Paris had provided us with false papers that the students could use to get out of Spain. The paper said that the students had been on a pilgrimage to a church, Saint-Jacques de Compostela, in Pontevedra. We had to try to match the students with the photos on the papers as closely as we could, assuming that the Spanish border guards wouldn't notice the difference. It went very smoothly on the first trip. We arrived safely in France with 20 students and we celebrated our victory. And we thought actually that that was going to be the end of the operation and then we received a phone call from Portugal saying, that went so well we want you to try it again. And we not only tried it again, but we did it two more times. Things did not go quite as well on the second and third trips. We attempted to take the 40 students from these second and third trips. Once we got them up near, uh, they were staying, being held in a uh, uh, safe uh, in a pastor's home who lived up near the border in northern Spain. But when we went to take them across the border into France, all 40 at one time, which was kind of a brash thing to do, the commissariat of police at the border wasn't the same guy we had seen when we took the first 20 across. And he said, you're kind of surprised to see me, aren't you? And we said, why? He said, because my predecessor lost his job for letting you cross the border with those other 20 students two weeks ago. You're all under arrest. Immediately arrested all of us and took us down to the governor's palace in San Sebastian, where everyone was interrogated. And during a search of one of the students, the interrogators discovered a Simad document from Paris. And suddenly all the students were handcuffed. I don't know why they didn't handcuff us, just the students. But we were all taken in military vehicles to the San Sebastian prison. So 43 of us spent a very nervous night at the prison on filthy mattresses in a large gymnasium-sized room. And the next morning they started constructing, some prisoners came in and started constructing bunk beds in the room. And we said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we have to do this because it looks like you're going to be here for a while. And then, right in the midst of that, suddenly some man came in waving a paper, rounded all of us up quickly, told us to get our belongings, put us in military trucks, drove us to the border, across the border into France, and dumped us off and say, consider yourselves persona non grata in Spain. Now we've never gotten a clear story as to why we were released, because it certainly didn't look like we were going to be. Though the CIA told the Methodist bishop who had actually financed this operation in a subsequent meeting in Washington, they told him that Franco, who then the fascist leader of Spain, had was not a in good relationships with Salazar, the leader of Portugal, and had gotten into an argument with Salazar, and that Salazar said, I understand you have 42 prisoners of mine. You, you must send them to, uh, to Lisbon immediately for a political trial. And Franco said, no, no, they're not your prisoners. They're my prisoners, and if they go to political trial, it will be in Madrid. And apparently this went back and forth until at one point, Franco said, in essence, you can go to hell. I'm going to tell them, I'm going to let them go. Now, whether that is actually what happened, it's a wonderful story, we, uh, but that's what the, that was the CIA's version. But we have a hunch that probably someone in the US government also made a phone call to somebody in Spain that helped to 
result in our release. Whatever the reason, it, we were very, very happy to be free, and especially the students, because three of these students were deserters from the Portuguese army and would have been shot had they been returned to Lisbon. Now that was 50 years ago. And it's one of these things that, again, it doesn't seem real even as I'm recounting it, because it's not the kind of thing I would ever imagine myself ever having been involved in. Several of these students went to different places to continue their studies. Some stayed in France, some went to Switzerland, some to Moscow, and a few to Lincoln, Nebraska, using personal monies provided by President Kennedy. And over the years, many of them did make their way back to the Portuguese colonies. And as anticipated, many became leaders in the freedom movement, which resulted in the liberation of the Portuguese colonies in 1973 and 1974. And subsequently, many of them held high posts in the new governments that were formed in these countries. Now, I had not heard much of what had happened to these 60 individuals. For one thing, from 1961 to 1973, we couldn't talk about it. It was hush-hush because these students were still in danger so long as those colonies were still under Portuguese rule. Uh, but we learned just a few years ago that Joaquim Chisano and Pascual Mocumbi, uh, who became the, president and prime minister, became the president and prime minister of Mozambique, and Chisano, certainly one of the most enlightened African leaders of the last several decades, he was in my car on the second trip. I drove Chisano from through the length of Spain. Uh, it was, uh, and, and so 50 years later, this June and July, 34 of us, including Shisano and Mukumbi, among others, gathered in Praia, Cape Verde, last month. Among the Africans gathered were three presidents, three prime ministers, and countless ex-ministers of defense, health, and so forth. It was quite a gathering. And I gotta say, we really received red carpet treatment. Everywhere we went, we had a police escort with sirens going, making all the traffic get out of the way. Never had that, didn't have to go to the airport. They took us to the VIP lounge, took our passports and did everything for us, the luggage, and then just drove us right to the plane and put us on the plane. Uh, there were two film crews, one from Angola and the other from Lisbon, who filmed the activities of the entire week and interviewed each of us about the fuga of 50 years ago. So two documentary films should be coming out within the next couple of years about this, and I'm anxious to see what comes out. I left that reunion, and so did Margaret, my wife, feeling higher than a kite and feeling truly blessed. People kept telling me and the other members of the original CMOD team who were present, and we must have heard this 30 times, do you realize what an important role you played in the liberation of the Portuguese colonies in Africa? And that's kind of a heavy thing to hear from somebody, <laughs> you know. And actually, I was the only one who kept a personal diary, and, I, and it was stupid. I kept a diary of everything that went on during those three weeks, and I've subsequently said, you know, if you'd been, somebody had found you and you were naming names in that diary, that was really a stupid thing to do, but we're glad we have it now, the diary. So the diary was photocopied and it's on the, in the archives of the Suarez Foundation in Lisbon right now as an, as an account of what happened during this Fuga operation. Uh, yeah, so it still seems unreal and almost inconceivable that I was fortunate enough to have been in the right place at the right time 50 years ago. And how often in your life do you have the opportunity to re-experience something like that, something you did 50 years ago and received new recognition and gratitude for having done it. It's an amazing, amazing experience. 
So this was truly a gift and an unexpected one. And I can only say that it filled me with a deep sense of gratitude. The karma was right. Things in the universe were right for this to have happened the way it did, both 50 years ago and again this summer. Now that could be the end of the story, but it isn't. I'm sure there'll be much follow-up on the Fuga in the next weeks and months, and hopefully some articles written and a couple of books written about that experience of 50 years ago and the political significance of it. But it's not the end of what I want to share with you this morning. Because another unexpected and perhaps even greater gift occurred upon our return from Cape Verde, which wouldn't have occurred had we not been in this trip. As a result of the 50th reunion, we learned that Jacques Beaumont, the man who originally set all this up for Simard in Paris, is living in, in New York. And in fact, was ill and was in uh, Beth Israel Hospital. So Margaret and I visited Jacques and also it turns out that his companion, Richard, of, his companion of 39 years was also at Beth Israel Hospital. They both had been hospitalized early in July. So we, Margaret and I knew Jacques, so we, we were reacquainted ourselves with him. We hadn't met Richard, but we got to know him quickly. And soon after our first visit, Jacques discovered that he has terminal leukemia. Richard suffers from advanced Parkinson's disease. His hands shake, and fortunately he can talk clearly, but that's about all he can do. Jacques is 86, Richard is 77. Now many of Jacques' friends were not aware that he was in the hospital, and Richard has no family and very few friends. So Margaret and I quickly started notifying people about their situation and taking the role of advocates, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the hospital, which unfortunately in this country you have to do with older people. And if you don't have an advocate and you're over a certain age, you're in trouble. Uh, we've been doing a lot of advocating vis-a-vis -vis the medical staff at Beth Israel. We've each been going to the hospital about three times a week on alternating days. Jacques, Jacques Beaumont is a very amazing man who has accomplished a great deal in his life first with CIMAD, then with UNICEF, where he played a major role in helping establish children's rights. And during the Vietnam War, he made several diplomatic trips to Cambodia and Hanoi and played a very important role there. And as he is struggling with the certainty of his death, which perhaps, and we're really hoping, can be delayed maybe as much as a year or two by the chemotherapy that they're currently giving him, he has spent a lot of the time during our visits, which have been tended to be long visits, recounting some of the wonderful adventures and great things he's achieved in his 87 years. He's a wonderful storyteller, and he has great stories to tell. And Richard has a wonderful sense of humor and is handling his illness about as well as one could hope. His body is emaciated, but his mind is still very sharp. Now on the surface, it would seem like what a burden to take on the advocacy and caretaking of these two very sick old men. As I said, our visits to the hospital are seldom less than three hours, and when we get back each time, we are exhausted. But I can't tell you what a wonderful thing it has been to grow close to these two remarkable men and to share with them in the most intimate details of their lives. Something about when death is near, all pretenses fall away, and you're just dealing somehow with the naked truth. And both Margaret and I have felt what a wonderful gift this has been for us, 
We feel very blessed and grateful for having had this opportunity to get this close to Jacques and to Richard. The high moment came last week when Jacques and Richard were married at the hospital in the lounge of the ninth floor where Jacques' room is. The hospital was delighted to host this, especially as a visible expression of their support of LGBT persons. They decorated the lounge with balloons and two photographers, they had a reporter and a wedding cake. A reporter and two photographers from the New York Times were there, and as I say, it's in the style section. It's the vows column in the style section of today's New York Times. I'm going to take several copies to Jacques right after we're finished here. More than a dozen doctors and nurses were present, cameras in hand, taking it in, and for the next several days, the hospital was a buzz about Jacques and Richard's wedding. It was a first for Beth Israel Hospital. Now, I don't want to paint an overly romantic picture of all of this. Certainly, Jacques and Richard face a difficult path ahead, and so do all of us who are going to be engaged in, in trying to help them. In the best possible scenario, Jacques' chemotherapy, which he's tolerating well, might buy him a year or two more of life. Richard is unable to care for himself. He can't go home. So he will have to, uh, Jacques was his caretaker actually before they went in the hospital. So Richard will probably have to go to a nursing home eventually, which is, and maybe as soon as this week, which is not going to be easy. But speaking just for now, at this moment in time, I can say that having had the privilege of getting to know these two men intimately and being able to be of significant help to them has been a most wonderful gift for both myself and for my wife, Margaret. Last week, Reverend Lee said that if one had to summarize the essence of Buddhism in one word, that word would be gratitude. And that certainly describes the way that I feel right now. And you know, I see a lot of gratitude also in both Jacques and Richard in the most difficult of circumstances. They're a wonderful uh, role model of what, how one would want to face death. So if there's one thing that I want to convey to you about what I've been talking about this morning, it's this. We sometimes get so caught up in the mundane aspects of our existence that we assume that nothing, that things are just going to stay the same. Nothing is likely to happen, certainly nothing remarkable. Nothing that's going to make things that different. But I think if we remain open in our spirit, in our anticipation, we may find that gifts can come from the most unexpected places at the most unexpected times and sometimes in forms that we'd never even imagined would be considered a gift. And as we open ourselves to these gifts, I think we then can only find ourselves filled with deep gratitude. So thank you for letting me share that with you this morning.